Good morning, and welcome to Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. Today, I'm going to tell you about the tragic death of Annie Lay. This is her story. So pour yourself a nice macchiato and let's dive in. We would like to give you a brief warning before jumping into this episode as it deals with sexual assault. We will not be going into extreme detail out of what is necessary to tell the story, but we would advise listener caution for this episode. Annie Lay was born in San Jose, California in 1985, where she grew up. She was known as a smart girl, very kind and eager to make the world a better place. She graduated as valedictorian of her high school, and she was voted most likely to be the next Einstein. She was extremely intelligent. She had even filled out over 102 applications for scholarships, which worked out for her because she received $160,000 in scholarships to get her degree in cell developmental biology at the University of Rochester in New York. That's a lot of scholarship money. That is so much, but she was just... I mean, she was so bright and smart, and from everywhere I look, and I could tell she was deserving of all of it. While she attended the University of Rochester, she met Jonathan Wadowski, and they quickly fell in love. It was described that they were best friends and the love of each other's life, and they eventually got engaged to be married on September 13th, 2009. So... In 2009, Annie had graduated and got her degree, and she was actually attending Yale University, and she was a doctoral student in pharmacology. So what is pharmacology? Pharmacology is a branch of medicine that is concerned with the uses, effects, and the modes of action of drugs. So basically, they're testing different medicines to see what's going to work and what's not going to work. And specifically, she was in a group that was researching a cure for cancer and they studied the effect of this medication on mice which we'll kind of touch on a little bit more when i here put a pin in that (laughs) on august 26 in 2009 annie had called her friend who was living in california her name was jennifer and she was a little nervous about her upcoming wedding from what i could tell it was nothing too major i think it was just the fact that she was only 24 years old and she was already getting married so she was a little bit nervous about it Yeah, I feel like it's pretty typical for a lot of people to have cold feet and to kind of just get a little nervous. It's a big day. Especially when you're so young. And from what I could tell, it was the move that everyone around her seemed like it was right. Like they were really, truly in love. I think she just probably wasn't expecting to meet the person she was planning on spending the rest of her life with that early on. As I said, she was attending Yale University, and Yale is located in New Haven, Connecticut, which I know from watching Gilmore Girls, and I'm sure Erica does as well. Yeah, that's my knowledge about Yale University. It all stems from Rory Gilmore attending (laughs) school. Well, what I didn't know is that New Haven has one of the highest violent crime rates in the U.S. I saw a site 
that we could share with you guys, but it's a crime index for different cities and areas in the country. And New Haven was a five out of 100 with 100 being the safest. And I have never, like when you hear about high crime places, you think about like Detroit or Cleveland. I never think about like New Haven somewhere with a Ivy League school. I just feel like that's really crazy because when you go to college, you want to be safe and feel like at home in your dorm and stuff. So I just feel like as a even if it was a parent like sending my kid there, I'd probably be really worried if it was that high of a crime rated city. Yeah, and which when I was looking up stuff, Yale itself, like the actual university seemed to be okay. The crime was more out around it. But I did see in like student testimonials that you kind of just have to be open-minded enough to know that there's places that aren't safe and be aware of your surroundings. How big is the Yale campus? Do you know? Like how many people attend? I'm just curious. So enrollment in 2019 was 13,433 students. Oh, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a pretty big place. As you can imagine, it's really well known. So I'm sure they get quite a few applicants. And something interesting about Yale, they actually have more graduate and professional students than they have undergraduate students, which is definitely not the norm. And I wonder if it just falls like that in the Ivy League schools. Yeah. So when you said that, I actually wasn't surprised by that. In my head, it just makes more sense that those Ivy League schools are going to be for the doctoral students because for undergrad, you probably are going to go somewhere cheaper and just get that degree and then head to. Yeah, somewhere with the prestige of a place like Yale University. And that's what my brother's doing. Like he currently is going to a local school that's pretty cheap. And then he plans on going to a law school somewhere of an Ivy League type. Well, and I can attest to going to a school that around is kind of not safe because I went to Ball State and there were definitely areas in Muncie that you kind of avoided because they had had a high drug problem there. So I can understand that. But also, as I read in one of the testimonials from one of the Yale students, you'd be crazy to try to maneuver around that crime rate. You know what I mean? As a college student, you're probably walking a lot. You're probably taking the bus a lot because it's just the most convenient thing. So you just have to be aware of your surroundings and, you know, try to stay safe as you can. Don't walk like alone at night and all those things they teach you about in high school and stuff. Yeah. So I just feel like a lot of college students aren't necessarily thinking about that because like I said when you're living there it kind of feels like home and you just kind of start to feel a little safe so you might not always be thinking about like oh I need to double check my surroundings but it's always good to be aware of your surroundings well and I'll tell you what this story is going to make you feel even more unsafe in an unsafe place (laughs) because when you hear it it gives you a twist you're not expecting so Stay tuned. Here I go. (laughs) I feel like that's the moral of most of our podcasts, though. Any one of them is just going to make you feel like nowhere is safe. So in the morning of September 8th, 2009, Annie left her apartment, which is about two miles from campus, and she always takes a bus onto campus. And we know that she caught her bus from her roommate and her fiance talked to her that morning. She was planning on going into the university and heading to her office and then going to the research center that she studied at, which was about a half a mile from her office. So she would typically walk between those two. So... We don't really know anything is up until later that night when Annie did not come home and her roommate 
Natalie Powers was instantly worried because it was very uncharacteristic of Annie to just not come home without letting her know that something was up. And she said she hadn't heard from her all day either, which was also very strange. And so Natalie calls Jonathan, which is Annie's fiance, to see if he knows anything. And he said that he had not heard from her since 8 a.m. that morning. And Natalie, like I said, her instincts were something's wrong. So she instantly calls the Yale University police to talk to them about it. The university police come over and talk to Natalie and try to get an idea of what's going on. And they kind of wonder if maybe Annie did have cold feet and she just kind of took off. But after talking with her family and friends, they quickly ruled it out. It was not like her to do something like this. Well, and even if she had cold feet about the wedding... I wouldn't really expect her to just run off, like, completely out of town. Especially when she is working on her degree and researching, and she was as involved as she was at the university. Yeah, I wouldn't expect her to just give up on all of that just because she was questioning whether or not she should marry Jonathan. So the university police go over to Annie's office at the Sterling Hall of Medicine, and they didn't notice anything that would signify a struggle. The only thing that was kind of strange is they did find her phone and wallet in a drawer in her desk. So they kind of concluded from that that she probably wasn't going far and wasn't planning on being gone long. Yeah, if I'm like leaving for the day or something, my wallet and my phone would be things that I would take. There's been times where like I forgot one or the other at the office and then would go back for it. But there's never been a time where I've like left both on accident. Especially, I mean, to do anything nowadays, you need your wallet. Pretty much. To pay for stuff. I mean, everything costs something. Well, and so the school that I went to was super small, like 4,000 people maybe. But I'm assuming at bigger schools, you're going to want your ID to get around campus for pretty much anything to get in and out of buildings And I would assume a lot of people, like college students, will have their ID in the back of their phone or they'll have them in their wallet due to thought that she would have had one or the other to get into that research building. Well, I do know that people do gain access to the research building. You have to have a certain swipe in card. I think we'll put a pin in that and I'll get into the logistics of it here in a little bit. They look into Annie's phone records and saw that she hadn't communicated anybody via her phone since 10 a.m., which one was weird for her because she was very communicative with her fiance and her friends and family. And two, I don't know if you remember, I said she was going to get married. And at this point, that would have been five days from now. I feel like at that point, you're on your phone a lot trying to like finalize the last minute plans. Yeah. Talking about how excited you are, logistics, excitement, all that stuff. I can't imagine going a whole day, five days before your wedding, not communicating with anyone. It just seems weird. They checked the local hospitals and couldn't find anything about her being in one of them or having gone to one of them either. So they didn't think that if she was hurt, she showed up at the hospital. At this point, there's just no sign of her and people are not sure what is going on. And as I said earlier, she took the same basic route every day, a bus to her office, and then her research lab was just a little walk away. So police and investigators thought possibly someone had been tracking her and abducted her. She was tiny. She was 4'11 and 90 pounds. It would be easy to subdue someone that small, probably. But also, it was during the day on a campus with a lot of people. So I feel like it would be hard to abduct somebody without anyone seeing anything. 
Yeah, I think that a lot of that stuff you pretty much notice. Everybody's pretty much out all the time on a campus. And then investigators also had the thought that this research lab, it was on 10 Amistad, which is straight. It's a sensitive place because of the fact that they tested on animals. So they would have a lot of protesters and people who felt very passionately about it there. So they thought, well, it's possible somebody was really upset about her research and testing on animals and took it to an extreme. And like did something cruel to her? I think that was their thought. I don't think they put a lot of weight onto this theory, but it was one that they still had in the back of their minds. Well, I mean, when you're investigating it, it is good to kind of keep any theory in the back of your mind. I agree. You never want to rule out anything until you can definitively rule it out. Police canvass the nearby neighborhoods and they don't turn up anything. And within 24 hours, they release a statement that Annie was likely a missing person and the FBI was called in because they believe that she was most likely kidnapped. They brought in the big guns early on. They really did. So investigators obviously check out Jonathan, Annie's fiance, as you do in most murder or missing people. They check out the husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. Because a lot of times it does end up that way where it's a spousal or a significant other. But Jonathan seemed like he was innocent in all aspects. He was polygraphed and he passed it with flying colors. He also was studying at Columbia University. So he wasn't in the area at the time of her disappearance. And nobody had anything poor to say about Jonathan. I feel like that's a pretty good alibi then if he's gone at college. Next, investigators turn to the hundreds of cameras that are on the Yale University campus, and there was over 700 hours of footage they ended up going through. After going through the footage, they found that at 10.09 a.m., a camera outside the Yale Animal Research Center, which is where Annie would go to do her research, caught her swiping into the building, and she was wearing a green shirt and brown skirt, which was what she was wearing when she left the house in the morning, and she was seemingly acting normal. There were unfortunately no cameras in the hallways or the rooms, so they were not able to find out what happened after she went in. After looking through all the footage, they could say that she never exited the building. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. The Yale Animal Research Center was a 120,000 square foot science lab, so it was really big. There were a lot of rooms and Police did a preliminary search and kind of went through the building looking in the rooms and they didn't find anything. And they started questioning students and staff and no one had anything really to add except for there was one report that she left around 1230, left the building. So somebody was saying that? Yes. Can I have the name of said person? We're going to put a pin in it. They do discover from watching the footage that... 
sometime around 12, 1230, the fire alarm goes off in the building. And there were dozens of people who had to evacuate and it went on for about 30 minutes. And mind you, a lot of people coming out were in lab coats, as you wear in research centers. And so it was kind of hard to tell if she was in the crowd. But from what they looked through, they did not think she left the building during that. I was watching a documentary about this and one of her old friends from California didn't even find out that she was missing until a couple days later. She saw a news article about it online and that just broke my heart. I just feel like that would be so hard. That would be so jarring too that you didn't even hear anything about it until those couple days later where you see it on your screen and it's like, I bet she wondered what she was seeing was real or not. Probably, I feel like it would kind of be like a, it would be a huge shock. I don't even know. I don't know if you remember the other day me bringing up how sad I'd be if I found out that you went missing a couple days later. That was because I was looking into this. Well, I'll try not to go missing. At least let me know the day of. (laughs) Okay, I'll call you. Thanks. Actually, that would be very beneficial into finding you. So go ahead and. This is true. I will. Bryce. Although I tend not to answer, so maybe yeah, call she never else answers first. her phone. I'll call Bryce. He actually answers his phone every time. Okay, almost every time I call. Yeah, don't count on me on having my phone with me. Nope, <laughs> no plans there. So earlier you mentioned student IDs and swiping into buildings, specifically this research center. You did have to have access to get in the building, as well as only certain people had access to certain rooms. So, did they have a record of who went into each room? They did, and they found that Annie swiped into room G13 at 10.11 a.m., which is the room that she was doing her research in. She also logged on a paper when you go in. You have to initial it in the time you went in. So they had that. Investigators and law enforcement went into room G13 and actually found a black hair with a root still on it in the back corner of the room. And there was evidence of blood on one of the walls which they saw with the black lights and the luminal. And you could tell that it had been attempted to be cleaned up by something, but it wasn't done very well. And you said there were no cameras in any of the rooms or any of the halls, right? Correct. Also outside of the room, someone noticed that one of the ceiling tiles was kind of loose in the hallway. So they push it up and they find a bloody sock and a rubber glove that had blood on it. And when that was tested, they used a toothbrush from Annie's apartment to test for her DNA and matched it to the DNA on the glove, the sock, and that the hair belonged to her. And there was also one other sample of DNA from an unknown person. There was also blood splatter found on a box of wipes that was sitting on a push cart inside of G13, which the blood matched Annie's. So they can conclude that something happened to Annie, most likely in that room. Yeah, they officially ruled it as a crime scene and taped it off and tried to do some more investigating. They start to search the lab dumpsters to see if there's any evidence, which it turns up nothing. And I saw this part about how gross it probably was because they did testing of animals. And I can't imagine having to go through those dumpsters. I'm going to keep the job that I have instead of taking that job. Because that just sounds rough and props to the people that can do that. They definitely mentioned how bad the smell was. And I think I'll leave it at that. And you guys can do your own imagination with it. 
but they don't find anything. And September 13th, 2009 comes around, and this is a day that Annie and Jonathan are due to be married, and they still have no sign of where Annie is. But on this day, investigators are walking around the lab, and they're down in the basement in the men's locker room, and they talk about how they could smell something, and they're pretty sure it was some type of decomposition. So they bring in a canine unit, which leads them to a plumbing access panel on the wall, and they notice that there are actually some screws missing from it. And when they opened it up, they found Annie's deceased body stuffed into it. That's just awful. I don't even... It's so sad and so tragic that they found her body on the day that she was supposed to be married. My heart's just like breaking for Jonathan right now and the friends and other family members. It is. It's a very sad story. Along with Annie's body, they found a green ink pen and a sock that actually matched the one that had been stuffed into the ceiling tile. How her clothing was on her body, it was evident that there was sexual assault or at least attempted sexual assault on her her shirt and bra had been pushed up and her pants and underwear pulled down her official cause of death was traumatic asphyxiation by neck compression she also had a broken jaw a broken collarbone and bruises on the back of her head she had been pretty heavily beat they did also find a semen dna sample on her body The next day, on September 14, 2009, they held a candlelight vigil on campus to honor Annie and her memory, and thousands of thousands of people showed up to show their support. Moving on with the investigation, investigators were pretty sure that the murderer had been someone who knew Annie and seen her go into the building, into that room that day. And they start looking into students, professors, and employees of the university, and specifically on those who had access to the research facility. They said it was likely they would have to have access to get in the building. My thought kind of went to how many times when I lived in residence halls, I would just run in behind someone though (laughs) i did that so many times especially when your hands are full and you don't want to get the id out but that was my initial thought i was like you know it really could be anybody or like i would go in with a big group of friends and one of us would swipe Mm -hmm. our cart and then like six of us would walk in together yeah there that was definitely i'm sure something they looked into but you had to swipe into the room as well and i feel like you wouldn't just let someone into your research room if you didn't know who they were. Absolutely. So after looking into G13, that room that Annie was last swiped into, they noticed that three individuals had accessed the room that day, a lab tech and then two outside contractors, which I assume they were just working on stuff. I'm not really sure the details of why those two are in there. It doesn't matter because the lab tech named Raymond Clark who was 24, just like Annie, was an animal technician in the building, and they instantly locked in on him because he swiped in at 11.04 and was there for 46 minutes, and he had signed in. Remember how you have to sign in? Mm -hmm. It was with a green pen, and when he signed out, it was with a black pen. Do you remember that they found a green pen Mm -hmm. with her body? I do remember that. If the green pen hadn't have been found, it wouldn't have been super suspicious because I lose pens so easily. And so I sign in and out when I go into places for my job. Mm-hmm. 
And so I'll sign in with one color and sign out with another yeah. one. So it wouldn't have been that suspicious, but I agree that the green pen being found was... With her body. Yeah, something to look at. Also, a green pen, people don't really use green a lot. I feel like it's always red, blue, or black. Yeah, I do feel like those are the most common colors that people tend to have. Police take Raymond Clark into custody and are able to get a DNA sample from him. And they actually get the DNA results back within about 12 to I think they said 16 hours, which is very fast. Very fast. They also noted that he had scratches on his face and his left arm when he was taken into custody, to which he said his cat gave to him. They didn't believe him. They were kind of sketched out by it, but they got the DNA back and it was a match to the semen DNA, the DNA found on the sock, and the DNA found on the glove that was shoved up in the ceiling tile as well. And they also tested his key card and traces of Annie's DNA was found on that as well. So they were pretty sure they had their guy. Yeah, things weren't looking real good for Raymond Clark. So it was Raymond denying that he had committed the murder or was he pretty much at this point going along with it like crap they caught me from what i can tell he was just he had to go with it they had the dna that fast and i think he was waiting to say anything until he had his lawyer advising and it was the correct time to talk though okay when they went back and looked at the footage they did notice that raymond went into the building and then came out of the building later with a different outfit on. So likely he had gotten blood on his clothes from the murder and changed. A crazy part is when the fire alarm goes off, you can see Raymond exit the front of the building and sits down on the steps and he puts his hand or his head in his hands and he keeps looking back and he's looking all stressed and investigators determined that he had actually already murdered her by this point and was waiting to go back inside to clean up and hide her body oh because he probably came out with a fire alarm Mm-hmm. oh so it's kind of it's really eerie to see that footage and him just sitting there being all stressed out also go back to when i said someone told the investigators that annie had left at twelve thirty the building that was raymond so he was trying to say that she left the building in hopes that they would not find her oh I can kind of like see why Raymond would tell the police that, but I also feel like he should just have stayed out of it and just kind of not even gotten his name involved in the mix at that point. You know what I mean? Well, I think what had happened is it's when they were interviewing people who had access to the building and they were asking if anyone seen Annie and he chose that opportunity to say that she had left at 1230 to try to throw them off. He probably knew that that was when the fire alarm went off. Yeah, I think that's what it was. And when you look into the articles and stuff, that's kind of what I think investigators were drawing together. I hate to say it, but I mean, that was kind of like a smart move to go with. He got lucky with the fire alarm. So you may not know this. Um, It may not have been released because it's probably not relevant. But did somebody pull the fire alarm or was it going off for a reason? I don't know exactly why it went off, but it was pure coincidence that it just happened to go off during that. It did not have anything to do with Annie's murder. I just didn't know if Raymond had pulled it for any reason, like, to try to move some suspicion away from him for that moment. I think they presume that he didn't have anything to do with it because if you can see how stressed he is sitting out in the steps, he was really trying to cover his tracks from 1040 a.m. in the morning till 345 p.m. on that day that Annie was murdered. 
Raymond had gone in and out of room G13 and another one, G22 down the hall, at least 55 times. So he was back and forth trying to clean and hide stuff that whole time period, basically. That's crazy. 55 times in six hours? Yeah, and what I think is so insane is that there were dozens if not more of other people in the building while all this is happening. And it's so sad that, I mean, it just happened to be, I guess, in a lab or a room that nobody was really accessing at the time. So sorry if I'm getting ahead of you, but do we know why? Was it an accident? Was it planned? Did he go in there? Because you said he was only in there for like 45 minutes the first time. Mm -hmm. So was it 45 minutes where he like... I feel like that's a quick amount of time to go in and then try to clean up. Yeah, so that was a big question mark. It was, what was his motive? And investigators kind of presumed that maybe he had made advances towards Annie before and she turned down. He just snapped. He actually had a fiance at this time and she did give reports saying that he was pretty angry and violent. And I think it was just a wrong place, wrong time. And he saw an opportunity to take advantage of her. He was a good, he had a good foot and a half, a hundred pounds on her. Cause remember how small she was and he was a pretty average sized person. So he was able to subdue her. And I think unfortunately it kind of fell into his hands. So please tell me that his fiance ended up breaking up with him after this. I presume. What I can tell you is on September 17th, he got charged with her murder and his bond was set at $3 million. He ain't getting out. No, and Raymond never explains exactly why he did it. That's why I think investigators came to their own conclusions. And on March 17th, 2011, which is a couple years later, I assume just through the process, but he, Raymond Clark pled guilty to murder and guilty to an attempted sexual assault, which was actually under the Alfred plea, which basically means he's not saying he's guilty, but he's accepting that there's enough evidence that he would be proven guilty. So he was sentenced to 44 years for the murder and 20 years for the attempted sexual assault, which run together. So he has a 44 year sentence and he will not be released from prison until 2053. I'm just not sure that that's enough time. I agree. And, you know, they talk a lot about how he was in court and how he was so quiet and, like, crying the whole time. And I think they almost, like, took a little pity on him. And I want to read you something really quick because I had some strong reactions and feelings to it, and I would like to see if you did as well. So... Lay it on me. This statement, it's a couple paragraphs, so just bear with me. It is Raymond Clark's father's statement after his conviction. So his father released this to the press for people to, I guess, hear their side of things. He says, good morning. To begin, my family and I extend our deepest sympathy to the Lay family. We know that they must be experiencing tremendous pain and sadness. We are truly sorry for their loss and wish them the strength to survive this horrible ordeal. It is with a heavy heart that I stand here before you today. We will never again see Ray outside the walls of a prison. We will live out our life knowing that he is behind bars, but we are proud of Ray for taking responsibility for his actions and pleading guilty. 
I want you to know that Ray has expressed extreme remorse from the very beginning. I can't tell you how many times he sobbed uncontrollably, telling me how sorry he is, telling me how his heart is tortured by the reality that he caused the death of Annie. Ray has wanted to reach out and express his remorse of having caused this horrible tragedy. However, Ray and my family have followed the advice of his attorneys and not made any comments while the case is pending. As a parent, it is very hard to think that your child could commit such a horrible crime. Can you imagine hearing that your child did the unthinkable? It is very hard for my family to accept that Ray is capable of causing someone's death. Our hearts are broken. It doesn't make any sense to us. This is not the Ray we know. Our son has always been a kind and gentle person. He loved sports and loved his family and fiance dearly. He loved life, animals, and always wanted to help out others. He had a good childhood. We have always been a very close family and we love our son dearly. We are devastated by this. In closing, I want to extend our condolences to the Lay family. Thank you. What are your thoughts? Because I had a couple. I've got a couple. So I'm going to break it down. You may never see Ray outside the walls of a prison again, but the Lay family will never see their daughter alive again. Never be able to hear her voice again. Never be able to see her facial expressions like you can at least hear his voice see his facial expressions and at least have conversations with him and still have a little bit of a relationship with your son whereas the lay family has a tombstone to go and visit i agree when i first saw that i was like you know look as a parent i understand that it sucks for you but i just almost felt like that was so insensitive to try to make it about them when I mean, like you said, they're literally never going to see Annie again. At least you can still go see Raymond. And he's the one who made the decision to do this. And when they talk about him not being that kind of person and being remorseful, he spent hours cleaning up and hiding her body. If you regretted it that much and you really just snapped, you should be able to like, I don't think you're owning up and taking responsibility for what you're doing by pleading guilty to get a lesser sentence because you're gonna be found guilty anyway. Oh, I agree. I feel like it's, oh shit, I just got caught between a wall and a wall. What do I do? Well, and a big controversy with this case was the fact that he did the Alford plea for attempted sexual assault. Like, I don't like that because he did sexually assault her and he took that so... It wouldn't be if he were to have gone to court, say, for just sexual assault, rape and the murder and stuff, he could have gotten like up to 60 years served consecutively as opposed to the 44 he got with them concurrently. So it would have been his whole life. Yeah, I agree. They totally could have taken that a lot further. I did look up the Connecticut law on like how much they can send somebody to. And I did see that it was 60 years for murder. So the other thing that I that stood out to me in this this statement from his father was where he said that we're proud of him for taking responsibility for his actions. And like you said, he pleaded guilty because he didn't have a choice. You know what? You can love your kid no matter what choices they make, but being proud of your son for taking responsibility for murdering somebody, I don't think that that can consist in one sentence. I agree. And, you know... The whole statement bothers me so much because it conflicts me because I do feel so much for his parents going through 
that as well. Like it is very hard, I'm sure, for a parent to find out your kid murdered someone and is going to be in prison. I get it. I feel for you, but it just it seemed so insensitive to me how it was worded. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to talk about how Ray has expressed so much remorse and he wants to talk about it and express it, but he can't because of the case be pending. I don't care. Like you can step out and say, I am so sorry. Like you can talk to the family if you want. You can express your remorse. Your father coming to your defense in a situation like this. It's like, where the hell are you? Why can't you stand up for yourself and face the decisions you made? So what? You pleaded guilty. How about you actually stand there and like take it? Yeah. And there's a difference, I think, between regretting an action you did and regretting the fact that you got caught red handed and you're getting, I mean, what you should get, if not worse. And there's a big difference too, besides being a part of, let's say, some type of robbery gone wrong, where you shoot someone and it's a split second thing and someone beating and sexually assaulting and then hiding the body of a young girl like that is so different. And like, I get it's murder either way. But I do think it's, it says a lot that it wasn't a quick decision. He followed her into the room and acted on this. Which Connecticut actually doesn't split things by first degree and second degree murder. They just, it's all the same in their eyes, which a lot of states do do that. Which is interesting. If you were in a different state, I think you would have gotten a higher sentence. I absolutely agree. A lot of states, I mean, they do life in prison for murder and there's states that it's life in prison and that's it. There's no like fluctuation for murder. Yeah, he's lucky enough that he's gonna actually probably still get out during his lifetime assuming he makes it to that release date exactly because he was 24 and he's got 44 years so So he'll be out when he's like 68 yeah and did it say if there was a chance for parole i didn't see anything on it there may very well be i'm assuming probably but it was not widely reported well there may not have been if it was a concurrent sentence that's what i was kind of thinking i mean at least not for Many years. Yeah. The other thing that I didn't like in his statement was, our son has always been a kind and gentle person. I would like to say kind and gentle does not involve beating somebody to death. And I find it interesting, too, that his fiance said he'd been aggressive and she was kind of scared of him. And also, I don't know if this is going to get any type of heat me saying this, but it talks about specifically in the statement that he had a love of animals but he was a lab technician in a research facility where you test on animals. And I just, I found it odd that they specifically put that in there. And I wonder if there was any relation to it. Yeah, I wonder if he was getting some heat for his choices in his job and profession. And so the dad was still just trying to kind of defend him about this character that he displayed and whether or not he really was this type of person, we don't know. I mean, his fiance saw him one way. His family sees him a different way. But do, does his family really see him that way? Or are they just trying to protect him in the end? I also, I don't know if his mom's involved in his life. And if she is, then why didn't she speak on anything? Does she think that same thing? Or is it just the husband? Because he's speaking for both of them by saying, our son our hearts mm-hmm. i'm not sure i do know that he was the only one who released the statement after because you do and you know sometimes in cases the person who is the murderer releases a statement apologizing that happens but did it in this case i assume it's because he can still get out 
before he dies. And somehow there's some legal, like legality to that where his lawyers are saying, don't say anything that might incriminate you more. But I don't understand. Well, once he's tried for this case, he can't be tried again for this same thing. He's already been tried for the sexual assault. He's been tried for the murder. What are they? I don't really see what they could do, especially since it's in Connecticut where first degree and second degree doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm not sure all the like methods and laws and stuff. Maybe there is something there that I mean, I wouldn't know about because it's Connecticut and I don't know a lot about their legal system. But either way, you know, and I just wanted to read it because it didn't sit right with me and I didn't think it sit right with you. And I thought it was something that needed to be said because in all this, like I I've said it twice, probably I'll say it again. I do feel for his parents and his family who were affected by it, but I feel more for Annie's family and friends. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm forward slash Erica Abby. Donations to our podcast are greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. If you like us, you can recommend us or give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on your podcast listening medium. Thank you so much.